Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third of the Beyond COVID uh, Europe and UK town halls uh, that the Design Executive Club's doing. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design Award Programs, and I'm joined by an incredible array of people that we'll get through and we'll introduce you as we go through this town hall. What we're trying to focus on in this in this session is about the rebound and also the reimagining that's going to take place in this COVID, COVID cycle. Um, we've seen that, you know, for a lot of people that they jumped out of the box and they wanted to go socialise and they're probably saying, oh, you better pull back. We've got some people on the call here from different parts of, of the UK and they're finding that the tourism is being pushed back, so don't come to our region, although it may actually help with the economics. Um, we've got some very interesting things that are occurring, but what I want to focus on is how we can solve things. Generally, when you see something which happens as a dynamic circumstance, circumstance that you'll find that there's actually a, how do we hack something together? How do we solve this thing in the minutiae at, at this moment? And it's generally because it's quite acute. And then down the track, you'll try to patch that. And at some stage, you get to saying, well, let's design and solve it. So it's actually going to meet all needs and all purposes and just be done gracefully. That's what the panel of experts here, that's what they do for a living. So we should be able to get some good advice out of that. I'm going to first throw across to Paul Priestman because, Paul, your, your world, which is around transport systems, we know that transport is something that we need to have in society to keep us moving around. But when it comes to airlines, the passenger loads have basically disappeared. When it comes to tra uh, uh, mass transit systems in cities, passenger loads have changed. But this is programs that you work on run for many, many years. Have you had your clients actually trying to accelerate to get to the future faster or have they turned around and said, don't call us for a couple of years? Well, I mean, it's interesting that the... the um in certain parts of the world, um, the, there is an acceleration in investment in infrastructure and public transport. And I think it's interesting the way that some governments are actually offering support to airlines and, and um, transportation systems on condition that perhaps they meet uh, some environmental standards at a later date. Mm -hmm. uh, so that some funding for airlines or, or, or support for airlines is on the condition that they reduce internal flights within the country. So that, that it, it then uh, diverts passengers into existing infrastructure, trains and things like that. So uh, that's, that's an interesting area. But one of, one of the things that I think is, is forcing the, the, the change in, in looking at uh, public transport is how we use the existing infrastructure that we have. And something that, that um, I've been looking at and, and Priest Maguda looking at is how we can actually start to look at metro systems in cities and utilising not just for passengers, for people, but actually for transporting goods. I mean, there was an amazing statistic that in New York, there are 1.5 million bus deliveries a day um, to individuals and businesses within the city. And if you imagine the pressure on the, on the road transport system. So if we were able to utilise the metro systems, the subways, to actually take goods into cities, and it's then to pop up utilising existing metro stations, and then to distribute locally using local resource rather than a multinational dumping it into an area. Um, it becomes a little bit more democratic, but we're also we're using those, that system. And then does that then, th those areas become almost like the hubs, the new city centres where the goods are collected and distributed and handed back and transferred and utilising local, local resource, local people to, to deliver the goods and help build up communities. 
And I think these sorts of things, are, these were sort of trends that were happening already because of the pressure. And, and given the current situation, I think it's, it's sort of a catalyst to, to look at these things in more detail. Yeah, for the rest of the people on the call, I, I also run a forum around the future of transport. And uh, one, of the, one of the most astounding conversations I had was, how will you ticket robots to actually travel on the trains? And initially, the, the, the chief architects of the rail system was like, oh, we can't do that. We can't have machines on machines. And by about half an hour later, they're saying, oh, it'll be fantastic because they'll be more orderly than humans. Um, we can tell them to wait in a corner while, because there's too much of a load on this particular train. They're in 20 minutes, there's not going to be a load. And all of a sudden, they begin to see that moving parcels around. At the moment, we've got people carrying these parcels. Imagine if we actually started to go use our mass transit systems to be the transport of goods and people, not just people. So I think I think we, that that's going to accelerate. And I think Paul, you did a um, an exploration on a bit of design fiction for Hong Kong Harbour with using drones buzzing around with ferries that were autonomous. Now there would have been a cacophony of uh, rotor blades there, but it, it gives you an idea that we can rethink the way that we're going to approach things. And I've got a feeling that's that's in that reimagine phase, you know, we've got some people who no doubt will be ringing up. I suppose the rebound phase is really around personal mobility. Um, Govinda, I know that you're doing a lot of um, work for people, particularly in the City of London. Uh, are your clients like Macquarie Bank all of a sudden ringing up and saying, can you work out an end of, end of journey facility to go put into the building because now we've got a thousand people coming in on bicycles? You know, those yeah, I mean, I, th I think, I mean, I mean, certainly the projects that we're, that we're working on in, in, is, is the crossover between personal and public transport. And it's not, an old, it's not a, a, a large vehicle for one person. Um, it's, it's actually how we utilise things that are coming on. Like New York has just um, licensed um, electric scooters. It's the first city to do that. That did it just like quickly um, because of the current situation. It's, it's, it's building more cycle lanes. It's encouraging people to walk. And I think once we, we actually consciously use walking, cycling, scootering, whatever, personal transport as part of the transportation infrastructure and network within cities, then that frees up the other parts of the network for other things. And, and I think embracing cycling and walking properly in, in the way that people travel around in, in towns and cities is, is the way forward, as, as well as the health benefit, of course, um, which uh, I think, again, is, is something which was a trend, but this is actually being pushed into that um, in, in some way. Mm. And Govinda, I'll go back there about uh, your clients. So they started to ask you for a rapid intervention to go and actually modify their workplaces so that as they're rebounding that they can return or are they still working out how that works? Um, I, think, I think, yes, there is both, both at the same time. I mean, obviously, people are thinking about how we can, we, we, we can sort of halve the offices up and, the, and people sort of working part-time at home, part-time at, at a location. Um, I mean, there are lots of talks about what is the, you know, office sharing, what, what, where's, the, where's the future of that? Um, and we're also looking at concepts of how can you reuse, you know, if, if the, 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 the draw of, of, of sort of the, the big centre center city office, the flash office, is that going to be a, a thing of the past? Because, you know, do you need to be in a, in a centre of a city when your clients aren't travelling or, or visiting as often? Um, and the, the appeal of, of working in a city are the restaurants and the bars and the cafes and the bars. Um, and if that I doesn't... Think, I think, 
And Paul, I think that will have its place. I think that will have its place, and I think it will become very, very important. I think there's a period of reflection, and going back to your question, Mark, um, I think that people are still trying to digest what's happened. So they haven't come back on stream yet. Mm. People are still in the reaction sort of part of what they're dealing with. But I think in six, six to 12 months' time, I think there's going to be a bit of a shift. And I think that satellite offices, you know, like Bubble Hub that we did, will really come into their own because people won't want to travel in every day, no. but they'll want human connection and a sense of belonging, which I think is what so many people have struggled with in this stop time. You know, we've kind of all had to press a pause button. But I think, I think those, those central offices... Once we get the transport sorted, and I think that is the biggest stumbling block, I think those offices will really come into their own and they will change. So I think that function will change. And I know with Macquarie, certainly they've said, we're, we're investing in technology, we're investing in infrastructure, but we are doing nothing else because we don't know where this is going to fall. And so I think where it will fall is to central offices like London will become community hubs where the brand and the business culture will be reinforced. And I think that's, that's what their purpose will become. And you'll have collab spaces and you'll have community spaces. But I think, you know, we, we've, we've tested over 10 to 12 weeks now that we can all work wherever. And there's a built trust. So employers know that it can, it can work. So, so I think the, the way that we work will change, but I don't think clients have quite got there yet. I think they're still too scared. Christine, I want to pass across to you because, you know, a lot of the work that you've done, uh, whether it's been about uh, being an advocate and a promoter for design and creative services or whether it's actually been the strategy side, it's been outside the country. It's been going in to meet people where they are rather than necessarily just meeting them on a call. And there's something about that moment where you've had a meal with somebody or you've had some hang time with them that we can't replace with a Zoom call. What do you see coming up as far as just getting out from the core strategy moment into the relationship building? Are you starting to see any solutions there or is that starting to still be something that needs to be discovered? Oh, no, I think there's still so much more that needs to be done on that. Um, I think just what Govinda was just saying about having a sense of community and that that face-to-face interaction that, I mean, we're, we're pack animals at the end of the day and we like, we build relationships on a one-to-one basis and we, we like to do it face-to-face. And I don't think that that, I don't think that will change. I think it's clearly going to be immensely challenging over the next year, um, if not longer, this is, you know, I think very much a wake up call for all of us. And many of us have become incredibly innovative in how we've dealt with this. But the international work will still, particularly in countries where, you know, it's important that you you have a relationship not just with the individual, but with their wider family. You, you know, it's very difficult to do that over Zoom to meet. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. And if you add in language difficulties as well and I dare say technology will help us solve that soon uh, too with kind of automatic simultaneous translation as we talk on Zoom I think that'll be quite interesting but the human element will always be there I mean the biggest thing that I've been grappling with over the last couple of weeks in my work and also in my my charity that that I that I chair which is domestic abuse charity is how do you cope with isolation you know on the one hand we 
there's a fantastic call for community activism, um, particularly in the UK where volunteering is so in people's DNA. Look at how successful the NHS were when they called for volunteers. I think they wanted 250,000 people and they got to nearly a million in like four days and they couldn't cope with the amount of people that wanted to help. How do you square that with the fact that isolation is still rife and it's rife, it has been um, uh, rife for the elderly for quite a long time. Uh, and now we're all experiencing it to uh, a greater or lesser extent. And then how do you how do you deal with that? And how do you deal with digital poverty? Because it's one thing to say, oh, we'll all go on Zoom, but not everybody has access to this. And I'm talking about children as much as I'm talking about, you know, both bookends of our populations are suffering because they can't do what we're doing right now. They don't have the wherewithal. They either don't have the equipment or they don't have the data or the infrastructure is just not there. And that is uh, is a really big problem. Pippa, I'm going to throw across to, to you here because uh, I know that with your practice, what, you're about 20 people and it's a mixture between built space projects for, uh, for housing and architecture and also displays and exhibition. Now, I'd imagine your displays and exhibitions that there's a hiatus on how that's rolling out. But how are you forming your team? Because 20 is an interesting number. It's not a massive studio. It's not a small studio. It's a, this mid-size, which becomes reasonably complicated to work out how to bring culture in. I mean, there have been lots of um, unexpected, uh, I guess, joys about everybody working at home that we've been able to, people have been, uh, able to have flexible time, but it's not for everybody. So people who've got children or um, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of mixture of um, how it's been basically. But um, one thing that we're struggling with now is thinking about how we're going to sort of reinvent ourselves and go back to our office and have that kind of studio culture. So, so in fact, lots of projects have continued through the lockdown, um, particularly we've worked internationally and actually those, it's been okay that we've had our kind of slow Zoom calls that perhaps they'd take longer than usual, but we get there in the end. And actually the advantages about sharing a document that you're kind of really focusing on. I think the, the difficult stages of us as a studio to work together are the initial stages and we feel as a studio what we what we give is that ability to sift through lots of ideas and work through through workshops and we hear lots of voices and that is quite difficult to do um, on the zoom call um, you know there's lots of kind of interrupting if you've got the stage then you're trying to share something it's much less fluid so we're trying to find ways through that so I mean it's interesting we've got our lease is coming up for a new renewal next year and we've got um, you know a big studio and we've got a big workshop studio as part of that and we're thinking is there a slightly different way in which we can um, bring ourselves together is it just for workshops and and how we use digital as part of that so it's you know it's it's interesting in the last uh, U.S. town hall that we did, we had uh, Brian Collins, the principal of Collins out of New York, on the call, and his lease is up, and he was trying to work out what does he do. And I think I'll, I'll put a link into this session about the RGA office that they went and they got Fosters to help them go re, replan a thousand-person office. I don't think we're going to see anything like that for a long time, and I think of into the type of um, uh, project that you went to Bubble Hub and then the idea of a co-working space um, 
we're going to see that change quite a lot. You know, there was a bit of a financial disaster for the people um, who were looking at WeWork uh, before COVID. I think now it's changed a lot because people are now looking at decentralised. The likely thing is that people are going to have a lot of fellow office space that maybe practices can go share. You know, Monday, Tuesday is one design firm, Thursday, Friday is the other, and the sanitisation team's coming in on Wednesday or something. You know, so there's going to be uh, some interesting ways that people go handle, handle that. Well, um, I know that in, you know, the conversation we've been having around the design dialogue about what's happening in the design industry in London continues because it seems like it's at the new stage. It's about to go and launch itself off into, into quite a different direction there. But you've got some events, particularly around the transport, and that's both from an engineering and also the design of new transport. What are you seeing that's happening during this rebound period and the reimagine, or is it same as? Well, I think there's some very interesting parallels with, um, you know, some of the applications that Paul's talked about, and particularly with uh, Govindo in relation to kind of communities. The thing that has kind of struck home for the design industry here in the UK as a kind of as a as a trading city uh, in London is there are no commercial trade shows for the design industry in the next 12 months. I've really tried to kind of talk to as many people about that as, as possible. There isn't really a very clear way through that, but I am monitoring what um, content is being developed, I suppose, in response to that, but also to provide more kind of specialist access um, so we're seeing things like um, hosted buyer programs. We're seeing things like online uh, kind of matchmaking, quite sophisticated uh, algorithms that are kind of bringing people together. Uh, I mean, just by, by sheer kind of nature of these things, there are two quite large scale digital online festivals taking place based in the UK this week. One's London Tech Week and one is a program called COGX. Interestingly, uh, one of them had the Prime Minister on uh, yesterday doing a sort of opening welcome and one of them had a former Prime Minister in Tony Blair. So I sort of sat there and watched them both and I, I did wonder, you know, on my screen it appeared that they were just kind of for my personal information. So this notion of being able to kind of personalize and to kind of provide niche content is a really interesting one. And connecting as ever marketeers and event organizers and campaigners and people who talk about design, connecting your client with your product remains a central challenge for us. And it's really how that's delivered in the next uh, the kind of immediate phase of kind of bounce back, but also, you know, for the duration of this, this, this phase that we're going through, because no one's going to walk through a door of an exhibition centre anytime soon. Michael, I suppose for yourself with, you know, the business is there providing furniture for interior spaces. Has that conversation changed? Uh, have people begun to say, well, we don't want to talk to you about what we were talking to you about before. We want to push back on one thing. We want to bring forward another. How's that? How are your interactions with customers who need immediate answers and also people who are trying to plan for the next three to 12 months? How's that working for you? It's actually been quite interesting because it's almost brought a lot of different individuals and different businesses onto an even playing field. So what some companies may not have been comfortable with as a transition now kind of seems like the only logical thing. And other companies who are really excited about a major change, they can still go ahead with that. So we're talking more and more about what has been happening over the last decade. So recently I read a report from 
at MoveFan, who are a global office change and relocation specialist company. Mm -hmm. And they revealed that many workspaces were significantly underutilized in the entire decade before this pandemic. So what they did was they took um, 80 different studies between 2011 and 2019, and they covered Asia, Pacific, Australia, Europe, North America. And observations were primarily focused on three different types of workspaces. So you had obviously your workstations, you had your conference rooms, and you had what they categorize as alternative work settings. Then they decided, let's choose five industry sectors, and we can uh, use cross-sector analysis. So they used finance and insurance, government, media, pharmaceuticals, and technology. So in total, they collected 2.3 million data points, which is amazing. There's not that many studies that have been carried over practically a decade. So what they were able to find is that um, varying degrees of underutilization in all global regions, across all industry sectors. And so for traditional workstations, you had at about 55% average utilization, which was still better than conference rooms at about 43%. And uh, the alternative work settings, which have been very, very hot topic for the last five years, all these breakout spaces, soft seating, all the rest, that gets used less than 30%. So um, that has obviously the lowest rate. And um, a lot of the time, it's not very, those areas are not very well understood by the users. And they tend to use them for heads down work rather than social interaction, which is what they're obviously created for. So then what they decided to look further into was conference room technology, and they found that that's also seriously underutilized. So I think what we're seeing is all companies within our industry that manufacture furniture, um, they are craving greater volumes right now. Uh, they want versatility, and they want to add value to office spaces. But um, where, where are the answers? So we need to take the best knowledge that we have, the best insights that we have about the future of work and workplace, because office buildings are empty and organizations are rapidly trying to implement all these variations now of flexible and remote working. So what we really need to do is sit back and review the, the data and, and say that, well, people have been collaborating through this shift to remote work. And um, how can we use this information to inform the return to the office? Because a lot of the time we still go back to there needs to be a vaccine that has to be developed and reproduced worldwide. But it's important for companies to leverage these workplace analytics to inform their decisions around the employee health and how it will impact the organizational health. Because if we think about it, in the age of COVID-19, open plan is the antithesis of social distancing. So how drastically will it need to change to get us back to work? And I think the, once the threat of COVID-19 subsides a bit more, I think uh, the business world that emerges will be very different. And the new normal uh, will see the workforce expecting a much, much greater flexible approach to the way we work and a huge reduction in real estate needs. I mean, JP Morgan have already said that one third of their real estate portfolio is gone. They don't see a need for it anymore. So um, I know we've had some discussions with Gensler and um, as part of their ongoing research, they're offering 
it's just, they came out with a document recently that had 10 considerations for transitioning back to work. And it was very clever, very well put. I think the first five were just um, very, very obvious. And then the last five were really interesting because they were talking about why don't you track who sits where, uh, introduce things like shift work, uh, designate isolation rooms. You need to create plans and communicate cleaning regimens and then maybe even screen people for admittance to the office. So the conversations that we've been having, interestingly enough, are changing. Uh, We're not having conversations with the usual suspects. Like recently we spoke with uh, Third Way Interiors and they launched uh, something called Hybrid Working. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a new program that will help businesses navigate the return to the workplace, but they've split it into three distinct phases. And they've kept it very simple. So it's just fit for now, fit for tomorrow, and fit for the future. So the reason that this is all being driven is because people truly regard working from home as a real option now. In a world of workplace interiors, we've been hearing about flexible working for many, many years. But very few companies seem to practice it in reality, yeah. um, despite suggesting that they do in their marketing. And it's an easy way to, to get people attracted to the company if they're, if they're screaming about flexible working. Um, I'm, I'm going to actually be, I need, I need to be a little bit um, uh, short here. With that we, I want to go pick that up and let's go into, and we'll do a, a deeper dive in depth with that uh, because I want to get to the rest of the panel in the time that we've got. The amount of knowledge that you've got there is phenomenal, so we will get to that. Phil, I want to move, move across to you and uh, you've heard, you know, we've got people who are, planning how their transport systems are going to work, how offices are changing. You've got how strategy in real life meetings, how transport meetings are working. You've got this perspective. You've been listening to what we've got here. You've also got your own work. How ready are we to actually to respond to the immediate need or is everybody still trying to, it's like we've woken up and there's a bright light and we really can't see anything and we're all scrambling around trying to go find our feet. Are you seeing any direction then? Good question. I think um, some of the panel already have, have said that I, I think that there's, there's a lot of tension and friction out there that change naturally kicks up, right? And I think we're at a kind of pivoting moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's certainly something around a kind of people-centered response to recovery. And um, I think some of the, the we, we've already touched upon this idea of the kind of resilience of communities. Um, and that's across kind of, you know, your local community, the kind of localism that we're seeing, the community support. I think we're beginning to see how people are kind of taking note of this pause, this moment in time. I'd read a a New York Times article which had a a lovely quote from Dov Seedman, the American author and columnist, who said, when you press the pause button on a computer, it stops. But when you press the pause button on a human being, they start. That's when they begin to rethink and reimagine. And I think we're currently, I'll, I'll, I'll put that on our, on our chat, that little quote, but it's a lovely New York Times article where he was interviewed. And I think um, that resilience that we're seeing across different sectors, different groups, I think people are starting to realise that those tensions and frictions can turn into something that's people-centred. And it's a response that we'll begin to see. I don't think we know what all the answers will be. 
but that idea of localism and listening locally, gathering that kind of intent and that that kind of positiveness that people are starting to have. But there's this playoff between people understanding what there is and, you know, people feeling more involved locally, I would say, in, in what they're working to. But then there's the kind of, there's, you know, there's the anxiety that I think we've spoken to about feeling remote. Uh, Christine talking to, you know, we, we, we like to be face to face with people. So as a creative thinker myself, it's great doing all of these, but, it, you know, these kind of virtual meetings. But I do miss, you know, just kind of listening and observing people. You know what I mean? And when you're creating together, you know, half of it is what's not said. You know, it's what's inferred or the way people will sketch something or, you know, pick up on a word that's spoken about. And I think, you know, that's that's something that I think we all miss, particularly across creative industry. I want, I want to then throw across back to Christine because you mentioned there about the about the mindset and the, the fact that, you know, we need to create for, for people where they are. In the previous town hall that we went and did in Australia, the idea of trauma and designing for people who are in the new abnormal and are traumatised. I think, Paul Priestman, you mentioned before in the in the pre-conversation, you talked about the before COVID, during COVID and after COVID. And I suppose what's interesting there, after COVID is, for most people's expectation, 18 months to two years away. And the during COVID is a traumatic experience. You know, we're, we're displaced from our office. We're not acting the way that we'd expect to act. And if we start to design things which are going to last for a long period of time, when we get back to normal and we're not in this abnormal state, we could have other problems that exist there. So I suppose, Christine, one, you know, one of the things that we see, particularly when it comes to domestic abuse, is domestic abuse is often that there's been other traumas in people's lives and it gets reflected back in domestic abuse. Highly inappropriate. That's part of the reality. How are you finding with the people who are, are in your world there? Are they actually presenting with more trauma? Uh, because I think everybody seems to be a little bit more on. And if you've got somebody who's got an underlying, you know, um, inclination to domestic abuse, they're probably going to be a bit on and a bit wired themselves. What can we do to actually bring that down? Or, can't, or can we or can't we? Well, I, you know, yes, definitely there's been an increase. I mean, just from our, our charity alone, we've had a 75% increase in calls to our helpline. And I know that that's the case across the sector in the UK and actually in Europe as well and probably wider. I don't have the data for outside Europe sort of in my head. I think a community, we've always advocated for a community response to domestic use anyway because it is a societal problem. It is not something that should happen behind closed doors and it's something that people should feel comfortable bringing out into the fore. But I was just reflecting as I was listening to the conversation, um, the, you know, we have some principles when we deal with trauma and domestic abuse, we have some key principles that, that, that we work to when it comes to healing and a sort of a trauma informed approach. And I was just thinking how applicable they are to um, society at the moment and to the world at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about things like getting back to trust um, you know, people have lost trust 
in in governments, in the medical system, in in themselves, in their neighbours. I mean, we've seen some terrible behaviour even out in the streets with people shaming other people for, you know, sitting on a bench in the sunshine when they're old and need a bit of vitamin D. So trust is important. Peer support um, is very much a pillar of trauma-informed um, approach to to domestic abuse. Um, so we need each other. We've been talking about needing a sense of community and how important it is to be able to rely on one another. Empowerment and choice. So empowering people. The fact that people can go home now and work from home and have power to a certain degree, greater power over the time that we were just talking about. You know, how they spend their time, what t- parts of the day they spend doing what. They have choice. Um, and ultimately, it comes down to giving people back a sense of confidence. I think there's been a big lack of confidence. And um, those are all principles of, um, you know, how you heal people who've suffered trauma. And I think we've all suffered trauma, but on a much larger scale. Um so, yes, so I think I might write a blog about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, think, yeah, I think you should. And I, I want to go back and, uh, to both uh, to Phil and to Paul here because, you know, we know that uh, mass transit environment or, or mass transport environments rather than mass transit, mass, mass transport, they're generally thought to be unsafe places in one second, but then in another moment they're considered to be safe places. Uh, if we go look at the cru- uh, cruise lines, um, uh, I checked while we were on the call, and the infection rate of the population who were on board one of the princess uh, ships, I forget which princess it was, but uh, Diamond Princess, uh, it was 1.8% of the population became infected with COVID. Now, that's some of the lowest infection rates per head of population for a lot of people. So, you know, it's actually, it was thought to be an unsafe place. Statistically, mathematically, it is a safer place. And we know that the same with airports. So when you've got people who are in these environments that you're creating, Phil and Paul, are they, did you design them for people who might be a bit more wired, you know, whether it's through terrorism or whether it's through a, a pandemic? What do you do to help build that trust? Because what you want is people calm who are moving through a mass uh, transport facility, don't you? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the, the skills of designing airport interiors is, is a consistency and a, a calmness. I mean, it's a very high-stress environment. Uh, people are late and people are rushing and, you know, worried about various aspects. So, I mean, that's always been part of it. Um, I mean, I must admit, I, and, and I think this is a trend in, in airport design, is, um, in, in, from a security point of view, it, it, it always seemed crazy to have security happening halfway through a building. Um, why didn't it happen before you entered the building? And that was a trend that was happening in hotels in certain parts of the world. So that trend was happening. And again, I think this this current situation has, has pushed that on. And again, I think that that's um, health and security screening will happen before you get anywhere near um, some of these environments. And that's a good thing. Um, so I think that's one of the things. I think one of the things we have to get used to is that, you know, we talk about during COVID and after. It's not that it's going to be like that. It's mm. going to be like we've had an injury. You get better slowly, and and you 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 work. And, and some people will will be able to get back to some sort of normality more quickly. Um, but it's it's what we do in the meantime. And one of the one of the projects we've been promoting actually recently is um, using social distancing on public transport for use. 
Mm-hmm. And one of those concepts is to use bicycles as social distancing. So we have a concept seat, which, um, so if you use your social distance, you don't want someone opposite you, you put a bike there. So instead of transporting just people, you're able to transport people and bikes. So when they arrive perhaps in their city where they're going to work, instead of going on to public transport again, they jump on their bikes and then have individual transport. So we're using this current situation as an advantage rather than a disadvantage. And I think that's what designers and creative think all about it's like we've given the situation what can we do about it and how can we implement and make what we've got work better it's getting the grit out of the problem we can't we can't just get rid of all our railways and tram systems and and, and pieces of transport and we have to reuse in, in a better way and and that and to some degree that's better i think i mean i must one last comment is we're talking about zooming and i did a zoom last week um with china and everybody on the other by the end of the call had masks on so you wonder well, why, why are we zooming apart from looking at the, the thing behind them and uh, you know and I, I do think it's really funny that, that you know on TV you see this eminent people that you're know, looking at their dog and picture behind them or, you know and I think I think there is a bit of humanistic um, element to it but um, meeting people's eyes but if, if everyone's doing this what's the point um, so I, I think we just have to again think of from a, from a creative point of view how are we going to communicate and you know, go through this transition, which will ease up, but we'll get used to the, this current situation, but it won't have a go. We'll just learn to live with it. So I want to then go across to, to Phil, because, you know, you're, you've got a different uh, take, for a different, uh, more being about the actual spaces rather than the Congress of people through the spaces and, and, the, and the vehicles that they're on. The creation of safe spaces, has that been changing much? Or, you know, Christine's indicated that we already know how to go and actually de-escalate, and we saw that in Black Lives Matter. Some cities brought out tear gas, other ones, the police got down on the knee. We know how to do this stuff. How's that interacting for you? Yeah, I think it's uh, it, it's kind of interesting picking up on Paul's point there. We've we've also been kind of looking at security, and they're they're highly kind of anxious spaces for people. And we've been mm. looking interestingly at color and kind of color theory and how we could gamify that. Um, uh, I think it's quite evident that if you introduce more of the senses into given environments now, you know, I, look, I don't think we should return to normal. I think normal's normal's a bad place to go. I think we've got to kick the dust up and I think where we've got highly anxious spaces and we've got fear uh, and we've got to make them more safe we've got to look to the senses around us that we're we're, we're naturally born to kind of to, to look at which is color interestingly enough I was just on a a mass call uh, kind of talk um, around um, safety on autonomous vehicles for female users. And one of the women that was talking spoke to the idea of bright lights. And our kind of technical frameworks naturally get us to put bright white or bright yellow lights into those environments. And we then believe that the female audience or user will feel safer. Actually, it's the complete opposite. They don't feel safe. The, she used the, t- the the phrase that she feels like, or most female users feel like, that they're in a horror movie when it's that kind of lighting, right? And uh, I think so we've got to be smarter and not go back to normal, realise who we're talking to and really understand what that need and desire is. And to, I, I thought Christine's like um, trauma principles there, that idea of trust, 
support uh, and confidence, I think, are, are hugely, I think, you know, we need to bring them to the fore in any kind of design brief, creative brief. Uh, but particularly around these areas where we're having to come back together again um, and it's not going to be normal. You know, we're going to have to use colour. We're going to have to think the way, un- kind of relearn the way we come together almost. Uh, and Phil, that's such an important uh, a point about the safety levels of what you might think is an environment that creates safety rather than what's come through studies. I'll um, I'll add into uh, to the show notes a study that was done by the City of Melbourne that uh, went into a lot of detail about illumination levels and it was then done with surveys with women what streets they would walk down what ones wouldn't they what ambient light level actually got them there and the bright light they said was actually negative to them because their eyes were adjusted to the bright light and the perpetrators were in the low light and that they had the advantage and you go hang on my head doesn't make sense there but what they really wanted was the nooks and crannies to be actually lit, not where they were, uh, so that they had the the upper strategic hand. I do want to go across. Uh, Will I think you've got some questions uh, for Paul about uh, about transport? I've always got questions for Paul about <laughs> transport. Uh, <laughs> uh, Paul, I just uh, you know I've uh, I've seen the renders of the uh, the concept for the bicycles acting as a reinforcement reinforcement of social distancing, uh, and you. The practice has so much knowledge of working with decision makers and policymakers. So this is a kind of specific and a broad question. Obviously, the types of projects like that uh, take a long time to uh, come to fruition. But I just wondered really what your perception of kind of policymakers and decision makers on things like uh, transport systems, how much do you sense that uh, design is um, at hand for them in terms of providing solutions in this kind of time phrase during and post COVID? Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think I think during it's it's very difficult for any uh, transportation company, whether it's airlines or, or, or train operators, to to implement um, sort of costly and, and long term changes because we just don't know how long it's going to go on for. So, um, I mean, I think unfortunately during uh, we're going to have sticky strips of, of, of sort of red and black tape on people's seats um, at a maximum, I'd say, saying do not sit here. But if, you're, if we're able to design things which, which can adapt through for, for different situations um, and through to allow, you know, to go back to full capacity and then, and then to, to allow this sort of using it for useful, useful space, um, whether it's transporting goods or people, then, then I think that that's the option. But I, I, I don't, I don't think that, that a lot of the, the the companies we're working with are, are really able to think about what what can you do right now, other than than sort of firefighting the situation, um, and and then just see how it goes. Um, but I, I do think there are some of the the digital inputs um, that we're certainly being asked to look at and are looking at about how you can help someone do the right thing through their their mobile device and and avoiding touching things. Um, you know, door handles are pretty much gone. Um, sanitizers, automatic doors, toilets. You know, um, you know all of those sorts of things. But if you're able to have a, a an app that takes you through an airport or a station, guides you through the, the process, and, and and informs you how to do the right right thing um, then I think that that's going to really help so those sorts of aspects are certainly being looked at but the major sort of development changes that are costly um, at this stage are not are not really on the cards I think 
Sure. I want to throw it across to Pippa because, you know, your, your expertise around museums are, you know, really interesting. How are museums planning to go adapt? Because they want to get their doors open. They want to make sure that they've got visitation. And I think every big exhibition I've been to, I felt like I was in a cattle race uh, heading off to an abattoir. It was very packed. How do you actually see museums changing? I mean, in a lot of the work that we're doing now over shutdown, we're thinking about this for either exhibitions that were about to open that we designed or ones that we're kind of designing at the moment. And it's very similar to the discussion that we're, ha- that we're having um, about transport. Um, it's how that we feel our anxiety levels can be so sated. So, for example, as you go in a space how you can gauge your distance to somebody else. So are there kind of subtle layers of wayfinding or grids? Um, Perhaps it's a linear route that enables you to always gauge your distance from somebody else. Um, Or as you come in the space, you're aware of where the exits are. Everything's a bit lower so that you're able to um, orientate yourself around the space. Um, I mean, we are looking very carefully at what's happening um, around the world as museums start to open and um, trying to create interesting experiences that still have, um, you know, joy and beauty within them. Um, But I think it's also about accepting less, so less objects. It'll be harder to get loans internationally, uh, less people. Um, But perhaps that there's also a kind of... um, excitement there in designing being able to accept imperfection we're all um as we're in lockdown we're all understanding the kind of fragility of 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 the world and our situation so um being able to use materials that perhaps they change when they get cleaned a bit like you know weathering in buildings and um accept that not everything's perfect, not everything has to be this homogenous view of the world that we're getting through our computer screens. The 12-year-old Mark inside me is just uh, wanting to bust out and say, are we there yet? And I, and I think we've all realised that we're we're a long way from being there. We're a long way from being past COVID. We're a long way from actually working out how to solve all these things. I'm really humbled by everybody's time on the call here. Thank you so much for helping out. And, uh, and we'll have this posted and then you can go through and add some comments in there. Again, humbled with your time. Thank you, everybody.